Welcome to Moments with Marianne. This is your host, Marianne Pastana. And we're here today with special guest, Dr. Sherry Walling, who's here to share with us her new book, Touching Two Worlds, a guide for finding hope in the landscape of loss. So Dr. Sherry Walling is a clinical psychologist, speaker, podcaster, author, and mental health advocate. Her company, Zen Founder, helps entrepreneurs and leaders navigate transition, rapid growth, loss, conflict, or any manner of complex human experience. So let's welcome to the show, Dr. Sherry Walling. Thanks so much for having me, Marianne. It's wonderful to be with you. Oh my goodness, what an honor it is to have you here and to talk about your new book. I got to tell you, I mean, let me just start off by saying I am so sorry for your losses. I mean, losing a brother and a father within six months of each other, that must have been extremely difficult. It, it certainly was one of those seasons of life where you feel like you're getting taken apart piece by piece, you know, um, eventually reconstructed back together. But there's certainly that period of feeling like everything is up in the air and there's so much loss and heartache that it it is a dark, dark period for a while. I know you share about your dad's passing as a very sacred experience. How is that different from your brother's? Well, my father and my brother died in some different ways. So my father died from esophageal cancer and he died the kind of death where he died at home. He died with hospice. So he you know, had planned to die at home. He was surrounded by his children, his wife. I was laying in bed next to him when he died. So it had that sense of kind of our family walking him up to the gate and waving goodbye as he went on this journey to whatever is next. And it was very um, intimate, sacred, tender. And my brother, um, we lost him to suicide and he died alone. He died far away from his family. Um, I imagine that he died in quite a lot of anguish. And I think for me as the the family member who's grieving both of these losses, the loss of my dad and the closeness that we felt in that experience, it didn't erase the grief, but it gave it a different tone. And my brother's death felt more traumatic. It felt more like he was ripped away in a way that I couldn't, I couldn't say goodbye. I couldn't, you know, hug him one last time. I couldn't tell him that I loved him. It was just this sort of dramatic, traumatic he's gone. Well, I am just so sorry for that. I mean, it's it's so heartbreaking to lose somebody and then to have it in such a tragic way. I I could just can't imagine how that really impacts a family. You know, it's, it's just has to be difficult all the way around. It it is. And I think loss by suicide is such a, uh, in many ways, a stigmatized loss, but, but it is something that is happening more and more. The rate of suicide within the U.S. has increased about 30% since the year 2000. And so it's something that I think more families are grappling with. It's becoming more a part of people's stories. And so being able to have some language to grieve and to talk about that more openly without the, the stigma of someone who dies in this way that people don't know what to say. They don't, you know, there's a lot of kind of shame and blame and uh, secretness that goes along with that kind of loss that that really is unnecessary. I think it makes people suffer more than they need to. 
How have your losses helped you become more in tune with your views on grief and loss? Well, I'm trained as a clinical psychologist, so I spent a lot of my professional life being present with loss, uh, especially traumatic loss. Most of my work has been in the trauma world. And so, you know, entering this territory personally, I felt like I had some blueprints. Like I sort of know, okay, like this is where this is. This is where this feeling goes. Like I, I know the terrain a little bit, but it really was a learning experience for me too, because I felt um, the need for different kinds of interventions. So for example, as I was in the depth of my grief, I really felt the need for movement to be really uh, active, really committed to my yoga practice. I even took up uh, aerial arts as like a circus performer. That's a whole other story. But my body just needed to be in motion. And I think a lot of people in grief feel something like that. But I, as a psychologist, didn't have a lot of of training or maybe a deep enough conversation with the integration of the body into grief uh, before I went through it myself. So my own personal journey with grief really shifted some of the priorities that I think about for people who are going through grief. In your work, you talk about how to be as an observer in our lives, to help us kind of keep in check with what we really need to be um, focused on at that present time. How do we do that? And why is that important? Oh, I think self-observation is one of the superpowers of our very busy, overwhelming, stimulating context and culture. So I think some of the simplest strategies for self-observation are journaling are just having a practice where you are writing about your own self with regularity every day, checking in about emotions, about high points, about low points, kind of observing the ins and outs, the ups and downs of your day, of your life, and and learning from them, noticing them, noticing the moments where you thrive, noticing the moments where it feels like the life is being sucked out of you. And using that as data to help you make decisions. So self-observation is a practice. It can be like a meditation practice or like a yoga practice, but it's part of our day that's woven in to help us feel curious about our own selves, to understand ourselves better, and to be kind of learners of our own psyche. How is grief, especially when you've been a caregiver um, for a loved one, how does that also impact um, you as a parent? You know, because I know you were, you know, you have, uh, you know, children, and so it's kind of like this thought process of how do you manage both at the same time? Yeah. So during the season of these losses, uh, my children were eight, eight, and twelve, so kind of later elementary school, and they were very aware of what was happening, certainly with my my dad, and pretty aware of what was happening with my brother. He was battling alcoholism and um, to hit some depression as well. So his illness was also chronic and then became obviously eventually fatal. So my kids were wa- having their own experience of loss. 
And they were also watching me, their mother, grieve, which was, I think, you know, maybe the hardest part is watching your mom struggle to kind of reconstitute herself, put herself together to get through various parts of life. Um, And I think that it really had some really valuable conversations for us as a family because kids are, as you well know, kids are exposed to death all the time, right? Every Disney movie, every sort of uh, children's movie, not all of them, but very vast majority have a component of a major loss. And that becomes then the the hero's journey for the child to overcome the, the loss of their mother or the loss of their father and to move on and save the world or build the robot or find the golden valley or whatever it is. But there's this sense in much of children's literature of death as looming and very, very present. And so the death part wasn't so unusual, really. But I think the in vivo real life grieving part was something that we tried to do very intentionally so that my kids would see how, what grief looks like, how it plays out, how you can be both very joyful and determined and ambitious and present to your life and also present with those who you love, who are coming undone, who are dying, who are ill. It's actually the title of the book, Touching Two Worlds, comes from that kind of duality, the duality of being present in the land of loss and death and grief and feeling like you can be fully there in some moments. And then shifting And coming back to this other world, the world of aliveness, the world of lives that are beginning, of plans that are being made, of hopes that are held. And that's another world that you can very much be fully present in. And they're not mutually exclusive, as one might assume that they are. I think a lot of people think they're two separate things. And to have that be something that's okay to talk about, you know, of of coming together, I think is so important. Yeah, it can be hard to go back and forth between them. Some There were some days where I sort of felt like I had a whiplash, right? I would go sit with my dad um, while he was receiving chemotherapy and really be in the presence of people who are quite ill. And I'd come home and like need to take a kid to a violin lesson and watch this child who's learning and growing and, you know, a life that's so early on that's just starting. And it does feel like emotional whiplash to be in the middle of that. And sometimes that's called the sandwich generation, right? It's those of us who are in middle adulthood who are both raising children and beginning to or in the midst of caring for um, parents and others who are who are ending their lives, who are aging. So we're in the middle spot and we have to touch two worlds. We have to be able to do both ends of the spectrum, which is not easy, but um, is also, I think, really, really meaningful and rich in many ways. You also share about a loss that you had at work. And I think that's so important right now because it, you know, people are going through so many losses and it may not be in their immediate family, but definitely, you know, somebody knows somebody that's either have some kind of illness or has passed away to COVID or something. And so how, how did you work through that? How, what advice do you have for people to work through that? Well, I think it's really helpful to be able to apply the term grief to all kinds of experiences of loss. It's most 
often associated with loss by death, which of course is a very appropriate time to be in grief, but there's so many other losses. And and as you're pointing out, so many of us have had all kinds of loss in the context of the pandemic, whether it's, you know, loss of the ability to attend a high school graduation or to have the wedding that you planned or you thought you would, or even to go to a funeral. Like, And many, many people, of course, have had changes in their job situation, whether it's losing, you know, coworkers or team members because they've gone to other positions or working at home when really you really loved working in the office or whatever it is, all of that loss has an emotional experience of grief, that mixture of sort of sadness and reflection and sometimes some anger and sometimes some guilt, but it's this emotional combo pack that goes along with loss. And I think when we can use the word grief to identify with all manner of losses, then we really give ourselves the space to healthily give a little airtime to the emotions that we're experiencing. When we don't do that, when we don't acknowledge that it's grief and when we don't give emotional time, even if it's just the loss of a coworker, um, you know, sometimes we sort of stuff down and create uh, tension within ourselves because we're not really allowing our emotions the full range of expression. In your book, you share how important it is for us during our really rough times to consider placing our anguish in past and present contexts. Why would we do that? Yeah, I talk a little bit about the importance of time travel for mental health. And it's a little bit of an unusual framework, but I think sometimes the weight of all of our cumulative loss, loss over time, can feel quite overwhelming. And so understanding the pieces of our experience that are from the past, that live in the past, and letting the emotions of the past stay in the past, and then noticing in our current present moment, what is our emotional reality? What is our current state? And then thinking about the future self, the self that you're building, the self that you're working toward. So when we can be comfortable moving back and forth between, oh, this happened in the past. I learned from it. It Maybe it hurt me. Maybe it helped me to grow, but it belongs in that place in our timeline. And then when we think about the future, so much of our anxiety is in worry and in kind of anticipating what is going to happen in ways that, of course, we can't possibly know. So understanding the difference between the present moment and then the emotional qualities that we attach to the future, which really we can't do much about. So understanding where our different experiences come from and keeping them in their correct sort of spot on the timeline can be really important in staying present focused without feeling overwhelmed by what has been and what is yet to come. Yeah, I can see that that would be very, very tough. I know during um, times when I've been going through grief, I can't think of anything that's going to happen next. I'm just kind of in a daze. And it seems like a lot of people go into this shock kind of place. Yeah, especially at first. Grief overwhelms our bodies, right? Many of us feel that huge stress response that's often associated with trauma when we 
are in grief. Our heart rate is elevated. Our breathing is shallow. We're just grappling with this sort of new reality. And it's very hard to integrate a new loss into the larger story of our lives. So for a time, the grief is the biggest story. It's the thing that's playing on our internal television set on repeat over and over. And that's, that's okay for a time. That's your, your brain, your body, your emotional life, learning to practice this information so that it can become part of yourself, part of the new reality of the sort of conditions of your life and the identities that you hold. Over time, that eases and there's other channels that play, other stories that become important. And our emotions and our physiology come back to either our previous homeostasis, our sort of baseline, or they make a new baseline. Of course, grief is not linear. And so many people then experience maybe around a a one-year anniversary or the birthday of someone lost or these key times in maybe the season or the calendar that maybe that grief intensifies again. And maybe you have a couple days or just an hour where you feel like you're right back in it with that urgency. And that that is also pretty normal. A lot of people feel that fluctuation. But I think for folks who might be listening who are really in those acute phases of grief, knowing that that is part of your body grappling with this very significant shift that's happening and and that that's normal. If it becomes overwhelming or feels like it's going on way too long or you know, something like that, then that's also a time or place when working with a therapist or a grief counselor can be helpful in at least providing some framework and providing some source of comfort. For those that surround people that have gone through just tremendous grief, what are some of the, I, I hate to say right things, but some some things that they could say? Because I think a lot of times people just don't have the language on like, what do we even say to somebody? Yes. And I, you know, to be honest, it gets particularly tricky with suicide. I think um, people really feel like they don't know what to say in that situation. But I think one of the most wonderful ways to come alongside beside someone who's grieving is to offer um, choices and options as much as possible. So for example, somebody who has lost someone, they've had them taken from them. Like they've lost a sense of choice and power in the world. And so when you can come and say, would you like to tell me a story about your brother? I love that question. My friend Jamie asked me this question about my brother after he died. And I loved the question because it was a choice. Would you like to? And then she invited me to talk about my brother, but not just about his death, about his life, or about anything I was thinking of about him. I think one of the the tragedies of, of people who love those who have passed on, whether by suicide or any other way, is sometimes their death becomes the most, it's like the headline of their life, right? It becomes the lead of the story. And of course, um, the fact that my brother is dead is it huge part of my life, but there's so much life that we shared together that I don't want those stories, those memories, that to get lost in the story of his death. The other thing that, of course, is really helpful for folks who are grieving 
um, is just practical help. Um, certainly in those early days, a lot of people don't really feel like cooking, you know, not super fun to walk the dog maybe, or tending to the yard. So when people can come over and just say, Hey, I don't know what to say, but I have two hours. Can I pull the weeds in your backyard for you? Or can I come in and, you know, bring you some food? Those kinds of things I think are really loving expressions of support and help when you don't know what to say. And that's okay. There's often not a great thing to say. So love without words is a perfectly acceptable way to show up for someone who's grieving. Well, thank you for sharing that because that's even been something I've struggled with, you know, here and there. And I just, you know, don't want to do anything that would cause any more pain. And so I think a lot of times, you know, myself included, people just kind of get a little stuck. Mm, Sure. Well, I know in your book, you share about having these moments of reflection and you have exercises for that. Can you share one for us? Sure. One of the, one of the ones that um, I did a lot in the story of my grief was to um, reflect on the experiences of losing my dad and my brother and challenge myself to kind of make a list of the pieces of those grief stories that I wanted to hold on to, like the things that I learned, the ways that people helped me, the poets that I loved, right? Just the pieces of this story that I really wanted to hold. And then I made a list of the parts of the story that I wanted to let go of. So I wanted to let go of any anger that I had towards my brother, Um, that might be different for other people, but for me, it it was something I just didn't want to carry with me for the rest of my life. So I made this list of things that I wanted to let go. And then, you know, you can do a ritual around them if it's helpful. Sometimes people burn their list or, you know, they do some kind of practice that exemplifies or embodies what it feels like to let go of, parts of the story that don't serve you. They don't help you. They don't add to your life. They're causing you pain and suffering. And then on the other hand, that list of things that you want to hold on to, the the, the beautiful moments, the lessons, the expressions of love, um, you know, you hold that, you keep it, maybe hang it up somewhere. Because I think that practice helps us to be an active participant in the grief. It helps us to be intentional about acknowledging, yes, this is teaching me something. This is transforming me. I will listen to this experience and take the gifts that it has, but I don't have to hold the suffering forever. I don't have to hold the pain forever. I can take the one and and let go of the other. I think it's so just, I know you touched on this earlier, just how you share about death and grief with your children. And I think that that's so profound. It gives them such a head start in life because it's something we're all going to face. You know, I think one of the hardest parts about this story for me is that I, my brother and I were both present at my dad's death. And in many ways, we'd been on different paths before that event But that event seemed to accelerate the differences between us. So my brother really struggled with grief. It it felt too heavy and overwhelming for him. And I just don't think he had 
the tools or, you know, I'm not sure exactly, but I know that grief contributed to ultimately his death. And so I think as I reflect on that, it makes me feel real fierce about the importance of helping people be grief literate, helping my children be grief literate so that when they have their own griefs and they can be gentle and patient with the amount of maybe emotional turmoil that they feel, or they can have a sense of what's normal or how long it takes or how to ask for help and reach out. Because grief is a very vulnerable time. And I think helping um, all of us, but kids especially, have some framework for that. Because there's no reason that you should wait until the death of your parents to have some you know, familiarity with grief or comfort with grief or understanding of grief. Uh, but unfortunately, I think we're not always proactive and preventative in conversations around grief. Sometimes it, it's more like, okay, when it's happening, then you have to figure it out. But I, I don't find that to be super helpful. I'd probably agree with you on that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> going to somebody's wake and then you know, as a first experience for death and dying uh, and going through grief, I think would be very traumatic for a child. I kind of, it's a little bit of a funny way to think about it, but I kind of think about it a little bit like sex education, right? If you're, if you're thinking about it for the first time when you're, you know, 19 and having your first sexual experience, like you have waited too long and your parents have done a disservice to you in not having that conversation over and over in little bits and pieces over the course of your childhood. And same with grief. If you're in the moment at the wake, as you say, trying to figure out, okay, now what, now what happens? Um, we can help people much more than that. These are universal experiences. They happen to all of us with 100% certainty they happen to us. And yet there's not a lot of, um, I think, proactive conversation about how to prepare and what to expect. Yeah, how to handle that. What What would you say for people who get triggered in public? I mean, I'm sure this happens all the time and they are just, you know, at this point where they're breaking down and crying. How can they work through that? Well, I wrote a chapter or an essay in the book about how to cry on airplanes because that was the place that I would get triggered. That was the scene in which I would almost inevitably cry. Um, and I was traveling a lot during the season of these losses because my dad was living in California and I'm here in Minnesota and my brother was in Montana. Anyway, lots of airplane travel, lots of crying on planes. And so I think the ability to just sort of plan ahead, like if you know that you're maybe prone to crying and you don't like the experience of crying in public, there's something to be said for some big sunglasses and maybe a scarf or a hood or something that kind of gives you a little privacy. Um, I also really, I really wish we could normalize crying in public a little bit more. Like we laugh in public. That's the opposite. Same sort of emotional expression, just other end of the spectrum. We would I think be a little bit better off if we were a little more tolerant of those kinds of emotional expressions in public? Because again, they do happen. This is a universal experience. And so as we maybe have these conversations, we can be more um, brave or bold or clear about crying as a normal part of life, not something that necessarily needs to be hidden. But in the meantime, until we change the social cultural conversation around crying in public, I definitely recommend the big glasses. Thank goodness for big glasses, right? <laughs> so, <I mean. laughs> 
Uh, well, thank you. I mean, I, I, you answered a lot of questions for me. I'm sure a lot of people have similar questions. And my goodness, your book, Touching Two Worlds, addresses so much. Where can our readers and listeners connect with you and be part of your community and learn more about your work? Oh, thank you so much for the conversation. It's been so lovely. Um, I am online at sherrywalling.com. My Twitter handle and Instagram are both at sherrywalling, S-H-E-R-R-Y-W-A-L-L-I-N-G. And this book, Touching Two Worlds, can be found wherever books are sold. It's at your local neighborhood bookstore. It's also on Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, places like that. And we do have a website called touchingtwoworlds.com for folks who are interested in a little bit of the backstory or, you know, some photos and a little, a few videos from me sort of describing some of the pieces of the story. So. Well, Sherry, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show with us here today. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Marianne. Well, thank you, Dr. Sherry Walling. It's been such an honor to spend this time with you and to talk about your new book, Touching Two Worlds, a guide for finding hope in the landscape of loss. Touching Two Worlds is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all indie retailers. And remember, support our indie bookstores. You can also purchase this book at the publisher Sounds True at SoundsTrue.com. We're going to pause here for a quick break, and we'll be right back after this message. I'd like to thank Jason Eastwood at Guitarfulness for sharing his inspiring music and talent with us. His music is known worldwide for cultivating atmospheres of harmony, inner peace, and clarity. Visit Jason's website at guitarfulness.com. Join his newsletter, be part of his community, and download his music. Well, we're at the end of our time today. I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in. You've been listening to Moments with Marianne, where we... Make every moment count. In a single moment, your life can change. Moments with Marianne is a transformative hour that covers an endless array of topics with the best of the best. Her guests are leaders in their fields, ranging from inspirational authors, top industry leaders, and business and spiritual entrepreneurs. Each guest is gifted and a true visionary, a recognized leader in her own work, and while teaching others to develop, refocus, and grow, Marianne will bring the best guest and sometimes a special surprise. Don't miss this. You never know just which moment will change your life forever. Make sure to tune in and visit momentswithmarianne.com for more information.